Before we start today's episode, we wanted to share a quick message. Six years ago this month, a reporter named Austin Tice, who was freelancing for McClatchy newspapers and other media outlets, was detained while on assignment in Syria. On this anniversary, our company motto, One McClatchy, means more to us than ever. As we at Beyond the Bubble and McClatchy's Washington Bureau stand firmly with the Tice family and hope for Austin's safe return. Here's his mother, Deborah. I still can't get my mind around the idea that we're not gonna hear from him this afternoon, tonight, in the morning. Across the country this month, McClatchy is raising flags and banners in Austin's honor, helping to bring attention to his plight. You can help too by tweeting with the hashtag FreeAustinTice or sharing a Facebook post in his name as we keep Austin in our thoughts today and every day. And now for today's episode. If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy in D.C. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we want to take a look at the blue wave happening in Kansas with the Kansas City Star's Brian Lowry. He'll help us break down how districts in the state are primed for a Democratic shakeup. He'll also help us understand what it means for the rest of the nation. Then, we'll get into broader GOP strategy for pumping up their own base. Political expert Liam Donovan is joining us in D.C. He's going to break down what Republicans are trying to do to weather the storm. All right, Andrea, it is wonderful to have you back this week. You ready to go? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared and fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So I think we've talked a lot on this show recently, Andrea, about the the possibility of a blue wave. And I think one of the things that if you really start to zoom in and, and think specifically about what that means, one of the surprising things to me is Kansas, of all places, really might be front and center if Democrats do have a very good year between its its governor's race and two different competitive congressional races really could be a place of, of real success for the party. Right. And our colleagues here in Washington have covered all angles of some antics by uh, Kevin Yoder in one of those competitive races. But we thought today we would go on the ground in Kansas to, to get some insight on, on what's happening. So we have on, naturally, Brian Lowry. He is the lead political reporter for the Kansas City Star. For now, anyway, in a couple of weeks, he is going to join us uh, in D.C. and be the Star's D.C. correspondent. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, having me after I was able to get some sleep because there was not much sleep to be had last week. There are just a lot of politics in Kansas, and I don't know that people realize. I actually have said that if I could cover one state in 2018 it would probably be Kansas because there's just so much going on there between federal races and the gubernatorial races. And the possibility that, you know, uh, the blue wave could even reach a place like Kansas, which, of course, really in recent history has swung its state government pretty far to the right. What is the mood among Democrats right now? Is there a real excitement? Democrats are are very optimistic. They're the most optimistic I've seen them in in my five years covering Kansas politics. You know, one thing I'll say is when Kathleen Sebelius 
was governor of this state, you did have two members of Congress who were Democrats. So this is not unheard of in Kansas. It's just for the past decade, Republicans have dominated every statewide race and every federal race. And this is a year where there is for various reasons, both nationally and at the state level, there is a lot of drama in the Republican Party, and the Democrats have some of the strongest candidates that they've had in Kansas in years. So conversely, what is the the feeling among Republicans? Because I know, you know, nationally speaking, I think a lot of Republicans, they're bracing for a tough year, but I think in the back of their mind, they still think, you know what, we'll take some losses because it's a midterm year and we control the White House. But we still think we're going to be okay uh, at the end of the day. What what about Republicans in Kansas? Uh, the tough thing for Republicans statewide is that they still don't know who their nominee is going to be for governor at the top of the ticket. So there's a lot of uncertainty. It's hurting fundraising. And if it is Chris Kobach, that's going to affect the congressional races. Kevin Yoder is going to have to answer if, for some controversies involving Chris Kobach if he's the nominee. And Certainly, immigration is already an issue where Kevin Yoder is trying to please all sides. These people are working hard every day, helping grow our economy, raising their children as Americans right here in our communities. So if you make Kobach the nominee, that's a bit more complicated. Meanwhile, in the second congressional district, a district we're going to talk about, the nominee is Steve Watkins. Christian conservative, deeply pro-life, a champion for the Second Amendment. This is a person who you had the county GOP leaders condemn before the primary. You had Trump's campaign manager release a letter to the Topeka Capital Journal criticizing his use of the president in ads. He'll stand with President Trump to build the wall, stop Nancy Pelosi, and fight for our Kansas values. You, this is someone who all of the other candidates were calling essentially a fraud and a pretender. He's a guy who is total political newcomer. First time we can find any evidence that he ever voted was the week that he announced his congressional campaign. So he didn't even vote in the 2016 election. He voted in the 2017 Topeka City Council elections the same week he announced his campaign. And he had met with Democrats just months before he announced his campaign as a Republican. He's barring Trump's rhetoric about draining the swamp. But this is a guy that a lot of Republican establishment figures have some reservations about because he just doesn't have a track record with them, even though he's got an impressive resume as a West Point graduate who also went to the Harvard uh, Kennedy School. Just to back up for, for the listeners, you know, we're talking about a pair of competitive congressional races in Kansas that are nonetheless pretty different kinds of districts. I mean, you had mentioned that Kevin Yoder is a, a, a pure suburban district, the, the type of which we've talked a lot about on this podcast. It's suburban Kansas City is a kind of is a district that Hillary Clinton actually won in twenty sixteen. Kansas 2, which is a neighboring district, is a little bit different. Yeah, Kansas 2 stretches from the Nebraska border down to the Oklahoma border. So it covers most of the eastern part of the state. It has some college towns in there. The University of Kansas is in that district. You have some pockets of Democratic strongholds, Lawrence, Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, some some areas in southeast Kansas. Right. You should have some larger pockets of conservative voters there. It's a very big Trump district. Well, it's not unheard of for that district to go Democratic in statewide races. It certainly went strong for Trump. Unlike the third, which went for Hillary Clinton, this is a district that went double digits for Trump in 2016. Can you 
unpack this idea of immigration playing out in Kansas as a big factor? This has been interesting for us if you were thinking that this was going to be the issue that is hurting somebody like Will Hurd in Texas, but, but really, no, it's in suburban Kansas. In the third district, it's a little bit interesting because most of the immigration to someplace like suburban Kansas City are people like high-tech engineers from India and China, mostly legal immigration. Now, there are out in western Kansas, and this will probably play up in the, the governor's race, there is a significant amount of you know, immigration from Latin America with the meatpacking industry out there and the large farms. But it, it, you're, you're certainly right. Kansas is not a border state. So it's more of a pose than it is really the most pressing concern for, for the state. Well, and, and I think when you talk to a lot of Republican strategists and the issue of immigration comes up, they're actually not sometimes as worried as much about the Hispanic vote as they are the suburban vote. Right. It, it's an optics thing. For Kevin Yoder, the detention of the families at the southern border was a very difficult issue. You saw that he came out probably in strongest terms among the Kansas delegation because that's the thing where, you know, in a district full of suburban moms and dads, they see those kids. That tugs at their heartstrings. Are the activists fired up about immigration in Kansas? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, the family detention issue caused protests around Kansas and also on the other side of the border. So that is an issue that that motivated people. It's one of those things, though, that I think at the end of the day, there's going to be other issues that really move the needle a bit more in the third district. One of them is going to be the debate over guns. That's an issue that we've seen a lot of activism from students on, and that I, I think you'll see Sharice Davids, the Democratic nominee in that race, try to tap into. You know, I, we can't have this discussion without at least mentioning the Democratic primary in Kansas 3, which received national attention a couple of weeks ago when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was campaigning in Kansas 3, but she wasn't campaigning for Sharice Davids. She was campaigning for Brent Welder. We are going to take back the House of Representatives this November. Who was basically the, the Bernie-backed, Bernie-approved, very progressive, economic, populist, liberal in the race. And, and he lost, you know, and I think that surprised some people. Maybe it shouldn't. What was the key in, in that primary? Well, there were six There were six people running. So mm-hmm. one, it was a very crowded primary, but it really did come to those two candidates. Uh, Brent Welder was the one who, for people who are really ideologically motivated, he was their candidate. It had a lot to do with the Bernie movement. Um, I think people who were drawn to Sharice Davids were drawn to her for a variety of reasons, one of which is just she has a very compelling biography. Raised by an Army drill sergeant's single mother, she knows the importance of service and hard work. From community college to Cornell Law, then on to the White House, fighting the whole way. She would be a historic candidate for a number of reasons. She would be among the first Native American women elected, if elected. There, there hasn't been one, but there's several who are running this cycle who could all tied for being the first. She would be the first LGBT person to represent the state of Kansas at either the state or federal level. She had a way to connect with voters. A lot of voters I talked to cited their personal interactions with her when she was walking the district, when they would talk to her. She really connected with them. And also, I mean, let's not overlook the, the value of advertising. Emily's List Pack paid for an ad for Sharice Davids and 
played it on Kansas City television in heavy rotation in the final weeks of the campaign. She never backs down, not in the ring, not to the NRA or Trump and the Republicans in Washington. Yeah, where do these races fit into the national map? Are they receiving a lot of attention from national groups? The Kansas uh, 3 and Kansas 2 have both been top targets for the DCCC. There's a lot of people who are just very intrigued by her candidacy, both what she represents and, I mean, what she is politically is she's, she is a fairly progressive candidate for that district, but she is more moderate than, say, Brent Welder and maybe a candidate who you can more easily convince a voter who has voted for Kevin Yoder in the past but is frustrated with him voting in line with Trump so often, you can get that voter to back Sharice Davids maybe a bit more easily than you can someone like Brent Welder. You know, Brian, obviously so much of what's happening in 2018 is, is going to be a response, positive or negative, to Donald Trump. But is there a sense in Kansas that there is still people there, particularly in suburban Kansas City maybe, are processing Sam Brownback's tenure and a lot of the the cutbacks to state education funding. I mean, Kansas was one of the few places where Democrats actually picked up state legislative seats in 2016. It was seen as a response to Brownback's tenure. Is there a sense that that is still, uh, you know, wind in the sails of Democrats? Look, certainly you can get strong reactions by saying the name Brownback anywhere in Kansas. You can get strong reactions, uh, particularly in the third district where education is such a key issue. That is clearly a strategy that Democrats are going to use. The DCCC put out a poll on election night that cited Brownback's unpopularity in the district. That said, Brownback hasn't been governor now for you know, nearly eight months. And I, I don't know that he has as big of a role to play in this race that he did in 2016 when the Democrats made gains. I, I think if the Democrats are going to make gains, they need to do more than just say, hey, remember Brownback? But there will certainly be a little bit of that in both the governor's race and even in these congressional races. Brian, you had mentioned earlier, you know, it's it's a little hard to talk about the gubernatorial race because we don't actually know who the GOP nominee is going to be right now. And by the time you, dear listener, are, are hearing this, I'm sure the news will have changed already. But suffice to say, it's an incredibly tight race where Chris Kobach has a, a narrow lead. Brian, why don't you give the, the quick synopsis of what's happened? Right. I'll say Democrats are the only ones who for sure know who their candidate is going to be. Laura Kelly, a state senator from Topeka. To me, Sam Brownback's massive education cuts weren't numbers on a spreadsheet. They were an attack on who we are as Kansans. She will be on the ballot. That is a definite fact. Uh, we are waiting to see if independent Greg Warman, who's a very wealthy businessman, has assets estimated between 20 and 80 million. He's trying to mount an independent run. We're waiting to see if all of his signatures make it through the process, in which case he'll be on the ballot. The people who will figure out last who, whether or not they will be on the ballot are Chris Kobach and Jeff Collier. Uh, Collier is the state's uh, sitting governor. He took over at the end of January when Brownback officially ascended to an ambassadorship. He has tried to frame himself as a consensus builder. He's distinguished himself from Brownback as being, I'm the guy who will compromise. Kobach, whereas, has certainly has not ever sold himself as a compromiser. He sold himself as a guy who will engage in ideological battles. He's the Secretary of State, but really, I, I think how he would be most important to a lot of your listeners is his close association with Donald Trump. 
helping lead the voter commission for for Donald Trump. He was endorsed by Trump on the day before the official primary, but that was after early voting uh, had already taken place. So I think a lot of Collier supporters think Collier may have won if not for that Trump tweet at the last minute helping get a lot of Kobach supporters out there on election day. Well, I think Alex and I, our introduction to Chris Kobach was a live stream in 2014 where he was trying to get, was it on or off? To, to he was her? trying to force a man to run for U.S. Senate against his will. The district attorney was the Democratic nominee, and he was trying to get off the ballot to essentially help boost this independent candidate's candidacy against Pat Roberts after facing pressure from some national Democrats to bow out of the race. Kobach determined that he had not satisfactorily met the exact wording of the withdrawal statute because he had not cited the specific reason why he was dropping out. And Kobach's interpretation was that you needed to do that. The Kansas Supreme Court disagreed. But yes, I got to cover that trial, which was essentially a trial about whether or not you could force a man to run for U.S. Senate against his will. And the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that you could not. Uh, He then tried to force the Democrats to appoint a replacement, but that also failed. So suffice it to say, Democrats in Kansas have come a long way from a 2014 Senate race in which their candidate couldn't get off the ballot fast enough to make way for an independent to... uh the situation now. Right. And, and that independent is Greg Orman. He's back. <laughs> and so now Democrats are going to, whereas Democrats had to fight in 2014 to get off of the ballot to clear the way for Greg Orman. Now they are going to try to fight his signatures to get on the ballot in the governor's race. They're going to try to dispute some of them. So yes, we, they, Democrats now realize that they would actually like to be on the ballot in Kansas. And that, if, if you want to take anything as your sign of the blue wave, the fact that the Democrats want to be on the ballot, I guess you could take is your most significant sign. Poor Greg Gorman, can't catch a break. <laughs> uh, hey, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It sounds like Brian is describing some of the things that we talk about in Texas a lot, too. Um, how do you motivate a GOP base when you control everything? And our next guest is also going to help us explore this topic, what motivates Republicans in 2018? Or what is not motivating Republicans in 2018, as it were. Liam Donovan, who is a principal at Bracewell LLP, a lobbyist, but I think importantly for our purposes, a real kind of known as a GOP election expert whose work has appeared in National Review and Political Magazine. And really, a lot of times on Twitter, too, about one of the smartest analysts you can follow on Twitter at LP Donovan. LP Donovan, folks. Easy enough to, to follow. Hey, Liam, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Alex. So it's, it's, it's like Andrea said, you know, we were, we were talking about Kansas and how all of a sudden Kansas has become the kind of center of the political universe for November. And the challenge that Republicans face there is similar to the challenge they face broadly and what we want to talk to you about, where it just seems like the number one central challenge to GOP, their base isn't nearly as enthused as the Democratic base right now. I take it you wouldn't disagree with that. So let's just dive into why is that, you think? I think there's something to being in the wilderness that makes you inherently hungry in a mm-hmm. way that you're not when you've when you've controlled certainly the, the House since 2010, the Senate for the last two years, and now all three branches of government. So I think there's just an enthusiasm level and an anger that seeps in when you feel like you don't have any control and you desperately want to get it back. Is this just modern politics now where we're so hyper-polarized and evenly divided that, you know, before maybe there was a large enough block of swing voters who could kind of ameliorate that anger 
on the other side that maybe we don't have that now? Or is there something particular about the Trump era that maybe exacerbates this for, for the GOP? I think we like to think that this is special and new and everything else. But I think the fact is that we've seen the needle swing pretty hard and fast in each direction, which has meant that each successive midterm has been a wave in one way or another. So I don't think it's necessarily new. I think the polarization is accelerating. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that there is a course correction anytime one side gets too much or controls everything. And and there's an inherent check that people like to give to D.C. And that's a big part of it. How much of this is on the Republican side is remnant from the presidential primary? Well, I think there has been, certainly since the presidential primary, a rallying effect where there was a cohort of Republicans who were sort of reluctant Trump supporters. He he was not Hillary, so they just backed him because of that. I think he has consolidated that part of the party. And so it's different than the primary in the sense that he really has become the leader of of what remains of the party, that people have sorted themselves in different ways, might not think of themselves as strong Republicans anymore, but there's still a significant chunk, and the people that will be decided in the election in November are people that might not be crazy about the president, but still lean Republican or have in the past. And the question is, how do they come down with these incumbents, particularly in the suburban districts? You know, you were talking, Liam, before we, we started the show. I mean, how much of is it, is there a disappointment with what unified control of government in Washington has produced for the GOP. Well, I think when you're trying to get people to give you control, particularly when you've controlled certain things in the past, there were big promises made in 2010. Well, we had the House, but we still need the, the Senate. Well, we got the Senate. We need the presidency. And you get everything, and the expectations are high in part because you've made them very high, when the fact is, as we all know, without 60 votes in the Senate, your results are going to be limited unless you can build a coalition. And they've done the opposite, which is sort of thread the needle with 51 votes at best. And so people are unsurprisingly not satisfied with the results. Well, I guess I'll defend the congressional GOP just a little bit. I mean, they did get through a major tax cut, tax reform package that conservatives seem pretty happy with. They have, obviously, the failure to outright repeal Obamacare was a major disappointment, but they have, at an administrative level, been able to change that law to the liking of conservatives, not to the liking of a lot of Democrats. But And at the same time, if you're looking at just the Senate, you know, frankly, Trump is on his way to confirming two Supreme Court justices. So is there a sense that there's like nothing you can do to satisfy the base at this point, or are there still legitimate gripes with how they've conducted themselves? I think it goes to what revs up the base. And and Mm -hmm. talking about these tax cuts that may or may not have become apparent to them. They haven't filed their taxes for the 2019 tax year. I think maybe some of those things become apparent next April, but it's a little late at that point. So I think um, the most effective argument from that standpoint is that these red state Democrats didn't support President Trump, uh, that these members of Congress want to, with Nancy Pelosi, take away your tax cuts. So I think I think inverting the cuts and saying that Democrats want to raise your taxes and take this away is a more animating message then here, see what we did with you, because it comports with what people sort of already think about politicians, that they want to take your stuff and, and you know, the, the mistrust that's already there, whereas I don't know that people have registered the gains that they've gotten when the bonus news has subsided, when the when the jobs news has subsided. That said, the economy is doing great. So I think they will be playing that up in the last 80 days. Who works as a surrogate in this environment? 
I think it very much depends on what your audience is. And that's something that'll be interesting to see who they send where. The president doesn't work in every district to the extent that he does. Maybe you don't want him there on election eve. If he needs to be having a rally two days out as he did in in Ohio 12, I think that's a problem for Republicans. But you will see him barnstorming, particularly in red state Senate. I think that's where where he is most obviously effective is in the places where there isn't the trade-off, where he doesn't awaken suburbanites that uh, aren't too pleased with him. But you already saw him go up to uh, Minnesota in the Iron Range and and, uh, campaign up there. I think it'll be districts like that who maybe will go to Kentucky for the Barr McGrath seat. There are places where he can be used to great effect, but it's not everywhere. So I think you'll see Mike Pence go a lot of places. I think you'll see, I mean, perhaps, you know, if you're trying to communicate with Republican-leaning suburban women, maybe Ivanka's out on the trail. I don't know. Right. Ivanka Trump on the trail would be be an interesting story for sure. So what do you do, though, if you're a Republican and let's say you can't have Trump out there trying to rally the base every other day? What is the game plan to rally the base? Is there just a hope that naturally as November arrives that Republican voters will just because it's not some one-off special election, it's a midterm election, will turn out in greater mass? Or is there have to be a real strategy the party has to execute to, to get them there? I think you, you raised Georgia 6, which is really, I think that's the, the case study that they'd like to point to, which is unlike these other one-off specials, that one became nationalized very early. No one was uh, asleep for that. You ended up with full-on, you know, high-volume midterm turnout. And of course, Republicans ended up faring perhaps better than expected, you know, winning by more than a few points there. I think they'd like to rep- replicate that. Unlike in, say, Ohio 12, where this broke late, nobody was really paying attention. And whereas Democrats are ready to walk over, walk over broken glass to get to the polls, Republicans sort of have to be reminded. I don't think they expect that. Uh, when early votes starting, you're going to get saturation coverage. You're going to have ads hammering everywhere. So no one is going to be surprised on November 6th when it's time to go out and vote and Republicans are ready to put on their jerseys. Another guest on the show talked up the idea that something unique to this presidency is how much Trump controls the microphone and controls the conversation. If you could script his next couple months, Hmm. what would you have him on TV talking about? I think using him as the attack dog and using um, Nancy Pelosi as sort of the face of these these Democrats when he was able to go out there and say that Danny O'Connor is just going to be a vote for Nancy Pelosi, that reinforces the sorts of message that the Republicans are going to need to use against these these candidates who are perhaps sort of anodyne or maybe have staked out some left-wing positions but aren't Bernie bros. I think that's going to be a big piece of it is having the president validate that this is this person is is like Pelosi or like Hillary, is associated with the, the more radical elements of the party, and that's going to be the choice that they have to uh, make happen. Well, you know, you alluded to this earlier, William, but there is something of a dilemma when you bring in Trump or if you have to start carrying like a really kind of sharp-elbowed cultural message to rally these Trump voters in your ads, for instance, that at the same time you could alienate some of these suburban voters who are already feeling pretty queasy about the GOP right now. But, you know, now look, that is a needle they appear to thread to some success in Ohio 12, right? Because you had both Trump visiting and John Kasich on air praising uh, Troy Balderson. Are other Republican candidates going to be able to do that? I think what happened in Ohio 12 worked, but it was at a necessity. They, they had to throw the kitchen sink. And um, I think the hope is that you don't have to do that in a normally scheduled election. Uh, I think the, the tension is there and you do have to alight it. But I think what's important is this was an open seat with a candidate that was perfectly fine and solid, but not well-defined, didn't have a ton of money. And so it, it meant the outside groups had to come in and, and, and play more than they might have otherwise. And when you have incumbents who have been around that have their own established brand that can perhaps be 
considered distinctly from President Trump to the extent that he's not popular in that district. I think that's what's important. Whereas these open seats are really instructive for how open seats might play and how, you know, I think Dave Wasserman said what it's been something like a seven point swing if you, you average them all out. And that's that's important and instructive in open seats, but these are not mostly going to be open seats. So I think that's the question is, what is the value of incumbency and how are those incumbents able to, without alienating Trump voters, sort of distinguish themselves where that's appropriate? Can you break it down by sort of what types of Republicans you are most concerned about and are there separate strategies for those different groups? Sure. I think when you look at the sort of tiers, there are the sort of half dozen or so seats that you always knew were going to be competitive. It didn't matter if Trump or, or Hillary won. Carlos Cubello was always going to have a race. Barbara Comstock was always going to have a tough race. Will Hurd was always going to be in for a, a tough fight. Um, those guys are still uh, holding strong. I think the district-wide polling is is going okay. In a huge wave scenario, those are off the board uh, or, or, or soon would be. I think it's the next tier of people that w- haven't been preparing for this for two, four, six years um, who maybe haven't had a tough race um, in recent years where perhaps Hillary Clinton did quite well um, while they won two years ago, and where we don't quite know how those voters are going to, to shake out in the suburbs of Dallas and the suburbs of, of Houston. And, and as we saw, I think that goes back to the handle point. That was an open race, but the voters, uh, and, and quite frankly, I mean, Ohio 12 is an, is an example of that as well. Unless you think Pat Tiberi would have been pushed to the brink, which I don't think most people do, that's the open question is, in those R plus five seats, we're not quite sure how those voters who went for Hillary or, or came very close will come down when it comes to House Republicans. That is a a lot for us to keep in mind over the next three months. Liam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. It is time for everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round. Jordan Marie, do you have that timer ready to go again? Yes, I do. Okay. Andrea, this is the first time you've given a lightning round with a timer. No pressure. You're up first. Don't worry. I don't think I've ever taken more than 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, so today marks the, today, Tuesday marks the six-year anniversary since uh, journalist Austin Tice went missing in Syria. Um, our colleagues over at McClatchy have a great story about an unlikely ally in getting him back, President Donald Trump. Uh, his Austin Tice's family has met with the Trump administration. Trump knew who they were and, and about their story and has appointed a new special envoy uh, for hostage affairs. And they said he's been a great ally in trying to get him back. The same man who called us the enemy of the people. That was a great lightning round. And God willing that uh, Austin Tice can come back home safe. Absolutely. Okay. My lightning round is a poll that came out yesterday that showed that Democrats, actually, a majority of them, have a better, more positive view of socialism than capitalism. Uh, this has caused a stir among a lot of a lot of people in the political class, including Republicans. Uh, Republicans, meanwhile, remain overwhelmingly positive about capitalism. Seventy-one percent of them, compared to sixteen percent, uh, who are positive about socialism. Um, this is a dynamic that you see in the Democratic Party with the primary victories of someone like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and really is going to be, I think, a central point of the twenty-six or the, excuse me, the twenty twenty Democratic presidential primary. Are you a capitalist? Are you a socialist? Yay, we get two more years of this. Woo! Sounds like uh, young people are officially no longer part of the Republican coalition. That sounds uh, sounds like that's where this is headed. Okay, Andrea, it was so good to have you back in the, the, the co-host seat next to me. Good to be back, Alex. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyond the bubble pod 
Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.